The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO podcast. Today, I am joined by Matt Daggs. Coach Daggs is the baseball coach for the University of Louisiana Raging Cajuns. He has become one of the most sought-after speakers today, and his transformational message has inspired audiences around the world. His pack coaching style and culture-building philosophy has been used by numerous professional and college baseball teams, corporate organizations, churches, school districts, and nonprofits to create strong identity, clear purpose, and unbreakable culture. Matt, welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm glad to be here. I know you're an open book, so we're going to talk about a lot today. So one, thank you for taking the time. Um, But first, I got to ask, what the heck is a raging Cajun? I don't know if it's something as much as a lifestyle. The Cajun people, Cajun nation, they're second to none. I mean, it's a way of life. It's very family-oriented. It's very outdoors-oriented. They love their teams. They love to have a good time. And, you know, more than anything, they love to help and support. Yeah, I was kind of, I looked at Google, and I'm like, okay, well, what is a raging Cajun? I want to know what I'm getting into here. And there's a couple words. Adaptable, determined, innovative, go-getters. Words jump out at you. Like, what jumps out at you when you hear those? I use that all. I I say the term uh, Cajun innovation, and you know they're going to find a way. They're going to find a way to get it done. Whatever's in their way, they're going to find a way either over it, through it, around it. They're going to jump in and help. You know these people are solid gold, man. They'll give you the shirt off their back, and and they're our second family. They're our adopted home, and obviously we're from Texas in the Houston area, but this is our this is our adopted home, and and uh, just so fortunate and blessed to be here. Yeah, in the culture down there, building a program down there, meeting people. What has been your biggest kind of win or thing that you want to share? You know, this is our second tour of duty here. And, and uh, you know, the first time was just an absolute love affair. You'd go from a last place team, the half season I was here, to a regional championship game, to the number one ranked team in the nation. With a lot of the same players, added a few JUCO guys and, you know, wind up 58 and 10. And I saw the absolute best side of this place. And they, and I've written about it, spoken about it, they helped, you know, restore me and my family. And, and so, there was a natural bond built there and a natural love affair, like I said, that just can't be broken. And then tragically, Coach passed away and, and the man that helped save my life and family. And we came back here under those circumstances. And that was that was what I knew we were going to do. And I don't want to use the word obligated, but in a sense, I'm a loyalist. And, and you know, because we were at home in, in the Houston area at Sam Houston State. That was tough sled, man, coming back in into that that scenario and that situation and COVID hit, the team was down. So I've kind of, you know, been on both ends of the spectrum and then felt that sweet feeling of redemption again, getting, you know, to a championship game or winning the, the Western division and then winning the league and then playing in the championship game again last year and then getting to a, an at-large bid, which is almost sweeter than, than winning the league just because it's a validation. And so it's been full of uh, trials and triumphs, uh, but one thing remains constant and the same and that's the 
the loyalty and passion of, of the Cajun people. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's talk about it. So you're leading this college program now. Your journey hasn't always been easy. Take us back a little bit. 2006 to 2010, you were assistant coach. You're from Texas, assistant coach at Texas A&M. 2010, something happened. What led up to that point? And what happened? And then talk us a little bit about that journey. We could go all day on this. And, and you know, I've had a, a life full of highs and lows and uh, been to the top of the mountain, falling all the way down the mountain, hit with a thud, didn't bounce, just hit. I was at the University of Arkansas and, and the A&M job came open and both Rob and I went for it and, and we were best friends. And we just said, whoever gets the job, we're both going to go there because that's our home, right? And both our wives, uh, my sister, we just had a lot of connections state and then they all graduated from there and we got there in the summer of 05 and and uh, took our took our licks had the largest turnaround in NCAA the next year I wasn't drinking when I went back there and you know I had rededicated my life to Christ in 04 at the University of Arkansas under just one of the most dynamic leaders I've ever known Josh Foliard and he was kind of our team FCA but it wasn't FCA I forget what they call it but had helped lead me back to Christ I wasn't drinking when I went there but it happened slowly over time and just started kind of self self-medicating at home and we went you know 05 into the 06 season took our licks 07 was you know a 48 one team super regional 08 champions same thing and then you know 09 we had the number one ranked team in the nation and kind of dropped the ball a little bit finished in a regional and kind of really started and it, it happened slowly over time right it's it's kind of like drifting out the sea and the enemy number one goal is he wants to blind you. And I was I was starting to come fully blind. By 2010, it was out of control and went into rehab. And Rob did everything he could to stick by me. And then heading into the 2011 season, just before it started, that's when I just, I, I say I drank my way out of a job. And that really and truly wasn't even a rock bottom moment. But at that moment, good Lord started stripping me of everything. Lost my family, my job, my identity, which is probably the hardest part next to family and our home, our kids had to change schools, blew through all our finances, lost a lot of friends, and more than anything, lost that camaraderie of team, and then became unemployable, had to watch the Aggies win the league, and win a regional, win a super, wind up in Omaha with all the guys that I'd helped coach and recruit. Very, 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 very humbling stuff. You know, when I turned 40, I was working at a feed mill. So I'd gone from A&M for almost six years to associate head coach to, to working at a feed mill outside of town to make ends meet. And it uh, wasn't until one man in the middle of the spring of 2012 gave me a second chance. Coach Tony Robichaux, he said, I don't care what you've done. I only care what you're going to do about it. And with that, he gave me, Casey, I think the greatest gift on earth, which is the gift of a second chance or redemption. And uh, I did. I got back up, dusted myself off, and it was like the good Lord said, let's go, boy. we got work to do. And I made the most of a second chance. It's not the it's not the getting knocked down. It's not the stumbling or falling face first that people remember. It's It's always over time and the message that you create from it through your, your walking, living, breathing testimony, it's always, what did you do about it? Yeah. And that's what the American people love and, and yearn for a lot of times. Because look, everybody's going through something. I don't care who you are. And uh, that's why I do so much speaking and writing and, and et cetera, is because I truly believe and I know God has a habit of using the broken things to find the lost and, and give them a message of, hey, man. It's okay. God's got you. So 2006, you're having some success on the field, and you said it was a slow drift. You started self-medicating. 
what was that slow drift or how does somebody listen to this right now that might be in that drift, right? Because yeah. what does that look like and how does somebody recognize it? Well, 06 was a big factor, you know, because that's probably the toughest season I've endured. I think 20 and 30 or something, 25 and 30. We didn't make the conference tournament. We inherited a team that had been struggling and, you know, they were going to run us out of town after one year. And so it was a lot, you know, probably at that point went to, and I remember the way it started. It was, and that's why I don't mess with this stuff. It was, okay, here's no duels, you know, fake beer, right? Well, that's only, for a guy with my temperament and I'm all or nothing, it's either a thousand miles an hour or I'm doing. And uh, so that lasted, you know, probably a few times before it's okay, I'll have a, a, a Miller Lite. And, you know, one the, the funny part about alcohol or, you know, the lies from the enemy is it's very patient and slow. And uh, one, okay, I'll have two. Maybe next time I do it, I'll have four. And I'll always drink at home, right? And I uh, wasn't a big going out guy or anything like that. But what happens is the gap closes over time. And so what may start, you know, two weeks apart becomes a week apart, becomes, oh, I'll just do it on Wednesday and this weekend. And the, that's the scary part about getting lost at sea is ultimately you look up and you can't find the shore. And that's what happened to me. I looked up and, and you're having to do it every day. And by the grace of God, my job. My, I know my relationship suffered. Uh, my performance at work really didn't. I never drank it at work or, you know, anything like that. It was it was just all, you know, it was from the time you were done until pass out. And I'd wake up and do the whole thing over again. And, and uh, we, had, we were having some incredible success, but I was living a lie. And like Coach Robe always used to say, your private life will ultimately become your public life, and mine certainly did. What advice would you give to somebody that's listening to this right now that – they have their own private life. They're, there's a secret. There's something they're not proud of. Their family doesn't know it. Their friends don't know it. Their coworkers don't know it. But there's something that's just not right. They know it's wrong what they're in the middle of or they want to make an improvement. What advice, what would be your single piece of big advice to give to them to, to break that chain and turn away from that thing and get healing from it? Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to that voice. Listen to your gut because that is the Holy Spirit. And mine, you know, mine every day would say, look, don't go to the beer store. Just go home. And I would almost do it, but I would go to the beer store, right? And my advice would be, look, you can have temporary gain, and that would be stopping at that beer store, whatever advice you've got going. And it's going to be about like this, but it's going to lead to a lifetime of pain. Or you can have temporary pain, which is denying yourself, you know, that denying that, that selfishness inside of you for a lifetime of gain. And I'm telling you, the other side is worth it. And, and my advice would be turn around, turn back right now, because it's not too late. And, you know, that's one of the big lies as well as, well, you've done too much. And, and that's a lie. It's, it's never too late to start making great decisions. It sounds easy. It's like, hey, stop. Don't do it. Knock it off. Turn away. It sounds easy in theory, but really what does it take to stop? What does it take you've gotta, to – You've got to find your why, Casey. And that's a great question because for years and years – I had proven I couldn't quit drinking for my relationship with God. I couldn't quit drinking for my family. I couldn't quit drinking to save my career. All of those things are at the pinnacle, I think, you know, God, family, and what you do. 
I think would be in order. And I couldn't quit for those things. And it wasn't until God took a drunk, he has a sense of humor, obviously, put him smack dab in the middle of Lafayette, Louisiana, the drinking capital of the United States, and uh, got him to quit drinking. But see, his kingdom's upside down. And during that journey here, my eyes started to become open again. And I, I was looking around, you know, we had the best offense in the country for two years, and I was in charge of that. We were having what I call a pack meeting one day. It was uh, February of 2013, and I just started looking at these boys I was in charge of coaching, and I uh, realized that his dad's in prison, his mom's an alcoholic, his dad's an alcoholic, his brother just died, his mom's been married several times. Uh, I was surrounded by broken kids, and I was surrounded by brokenness, and I was the chief broken one amongst them. And I looked at them and just made a promise. I didn't say it out loud, but I said, I'm never, ever, ever going to let you guys down again. And that was the pivotal finding of my why. And with that, it motivated me to take one step of action. And I didn't drink that day. And I woke up with my why again, and I didn't drink again. And it got to the point, Casey, where there's a great there's a great speech, and it's one page long by a, a Navy SEAL instructor, instructor Eshelman, Rob O'Neill, the guy that shot Bin Laden, read it off one day. And he's exactly right. If you want to accomplish anything long term, you've got to set short term goals. And if you want to quit, just quit tomorrow. And that's what I would tell myself. I, I don't know that I'm never going to drink again because that's too long term. You can't you can't say I'm never it, because that's too daunting. But I do know this. If I do drink again, it'll be tomorrow. And then I wake up and I say, well, I'll do it tomorrow and I'll do it tomorrow. And before you know it, you're three months down the road. You're six months down the road. Now people are starting to pay attention. Uh, your eyes are open. They're clear. You just have a different aura and light about you. And now it starts to become more personal. And then you, you hit a year and you get to the point, Casey, where it's more valuable than your life. That I'm not going to surrender. You'll have to kill me. I still tell myself that. I don't know that I'm never going to do stuff again. I just know I'm not doing it today. That to me is A, I found my why. And it was those young men. And that's that's the reason I came back here after Coach passed. It was for Coach, his family, Cajun Nation. And most of all, it was for that 2014 team. And uh, we're still you know, like this today. And, and uh, you know, they're responsible. They didn't know it at the time, but they're responsible for me taking that first step and, and surrendering everything. And at that point, when the action that I took met the faith that I had, that's when all bets were off. And that's how you make, literally how you make people say how. How did, how? How'd that? I thought he was a drunk. I thought, you know, I thought he was fired. Well, how? They were terrible. What? That's how David pulled it off against Goliath. I mean, he was he had faith, but he took action. He picked up five rocks and said, not only am I going to kill you with this one, I heard you got four brothers. And uh, it's faith and action, man. So there's the why. There's the why. And then why. there's the how. Looking yeah. at that, you were, you know, a little bit farther advanced down the road before you found your why. Let's look at a high school baseball player or a college baseball player or an entrepreneur in their 20s. Like what per I don't know if it's a percentage, but what percentage of, I guess, people at all levels know their why? And is that one of the biggest hurdles that somebody has to figure out before they can really move to the next thing, the how? If you're, if you're blessed to have a why as a young person. Uh, as a kid, you're a hundred times ahead of the competition, in my opinion. And good Lord bless me with that. You know, from the time I came into this world, I, I'd have cut my right hand off to play in the big leagues, man. And that was my why. And why's ebb and flow over time? Why's more, you know, like my why now is my family, which before it wasn't, right? I had proven that. 
my why is this team that I'm currently coaching. Sometimes your why just gets you started until you find that next why, if that so, makes any sense. So there's the why, and then it sounds like there's also the who that's around you to help you stay focused on that why, and then there's the how. And it sounds like you've had people, whether it's assistant coaches or mentors, that have helped you through your journey to freedom and to achieving the level of success both on the field and off the field. Would you agree with that? No doubt about it. I mean, I, I got my family back and my wife is a huge part of that. Praise God for my parents and my dad and sister and two or three childhood friends that, that have never let go, you know, and then these boys. And that's my thing, man. I live vicariously through these boys and that is, I'm addicted to competition. I'm addicted to seeing guys make adjustments and learn how to really play this game at a high level. There's a key for everybody that unlocks that potential that God gave them. And boy, that aha moment, I, I live for that. I live to see that dog power, their success. And the eyes are open, and uh, there's there's a lot of whys. But the personal whys, the whys you'll die for, those are the ones that'll keep you going in the midst of the the, the heavy times, the grind, or the darkness. That's great. You went viral a few years ago, and you started talking about you were a transactional coach, and now you're transformational. And it was. I guess a little bit more me focused back in the day, and now it's a little bit more others focused. What led to that transformation, especially being a college coach where your success is out there for everybody to see and most people are judged on their wins and losses? Yeah, and you know, I am a transactional man that has to wake up every day and deny that part of himself to be transformational because it's uh, with me, it's pretty cut and dried. You win or you don't win. And that's, I'm, I'm probably one of the worst losers you've ever met. And I, can, I have the ability to go black and white real quick at the expense of anybody or anything. And I have to die to that person. And that includes myself. I mean, I'm the king of cutting off your nose despite your face. And I think Coach Robe, uh, the time that I spent with him, the two and a half years that him, you know, he became a, a boss and then a mentor and then a, one of my best friends and then a big brother. And, you know, he was just so wise beyond his years even and, and so patient. And I've never I've never been a man of patience. And uh, he gave me a book called Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman. And that talks about transformational coaching. And uh, that, that helped change my perspective and outlook on how to truly get the most out of your guys. And, and uh, you know, I really have one mission right now. Make sure that you guys play hard, have fun, and get better uh, every single day. If you can check that box, man, that scoreboard, that big thing out in left center, the thing's going to take care of itself. And then the other side of it for me is, is turning out full-grown men back out that clubhouse door that stand for something. And our society's in desperate need of that right now. And I don't care if I got to turn them out one at a time until I retire. That's my goal and mission is that they're going to draw a line in the sand and say, no, no, this is what we stand for. This is who we are as strong men. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about the modern athlete, the modern player today. The person that's walking on campus as a 18-year-old freshman in 2023 versus 2006. Have they changed at all? I don't think so. I say it a lot, especially speaking, and I tell our team this, I don't think kids have changed. I think the accountability for the kids has changed. And I think uh, somewhere along the way, whoever uh, was mentoring you or leading you or, or guiding you, the way that I would do it is uh, not the way that they did it. And the accountability wasn't there. The standard wasn't there. I think where we put our priorities is, is off whack, out of whack. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's half the equation 
is I don't think kids have changed. I think, you know, the people bringing up the kids have, have compromised, which I don't think you do that with kids. And that's the first thing. The second thing is this, and I've put a lot of thought into this. My great-grandparents, my great-grandparents would have grown up in the World War One era to my grandparents' World War Two to my parents, Vietnam. Okay. Now, really, what changed during their lifetime? There was a TV come out, maybe a black and white TV. That that was a change. Maybe a four door vehicle. There wasn't a lot going on. Even to when I grew up, what changed for us? Well, we went from a TV to having when I was in my teens, cable. And then there was a remote to the TV. I didn't have to get on the roof and, and jack with the antenna for my dad so we could get reception. That was pretty much it. Now, from me, my generation, to my kids, what's changed? You can't count them all. It's daily. And so we grew up in a time, and my parents grew up in a time, and my grandparents and great-grandparents, they all grew up in a time that when you left the house, nobody's going to know what you're doing or where you're at. Mom and dad were working most of the time. You were responsible for yourself, okay? There was a lot of respect. I know my parents, it wasn't necessarily about grades or being home. They didn't care about any of that. We basically raised, you know, ourselves a lot of the time. What they did care about is you don't respect anybody or, or embarrass our last name. That's what they cared about. But there was no big changes. I mean, I, you can't count all the changes from a phone that had a cord on it to now there's a phone you can walk around the house talking on it to now there's a phone you can drive around with. Uh, now you can text with it. Now there's computers. Now there's an internet. No more encyclopedias. You have an internet. So it's instant information, instant access, instant gratification for anything. That's the other side to this equation. That's a big deal. And how does and that impact, I guess, the next generation, the current generation, how to, you know, work better together? You know, it feels now it's more the me mentality than the we mentality. Is that impacting it or is it But going we've perpetuated that, Casey. We've been okay with that. I'm not okay with that. Uh, you know, Jesus talked about it in Mark 9:35. If anybody wants to be first, he must first be last. And it's, it also says in, in 1 Peter, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in due time. And believe it or not, and this is just what I'm seeing, I think there's a yearning, there's a craving out of these young kids to go back to some of those times. I really do. And I think you're going to start to see a shift in paradigm and belief systems. I really do. I, I think, because here's what, here's been my experience with, with these young men. They will give exactly what you demand out of them. They will. But you got to hold them to account. You got to discipline them. And they got to know you love them. But you're going okay. back to, and this is going back to, people have compromised with leading young people. In what areas have people? Well, think about that. Everybody's getting a trophy, right? That's a compromise. You either win or you lose, period. In the center. Everybody gets to play. No, they don't. No, they don't. There should be cuts. You should experience that disappointment. We have exalted self-esteem over every... Let the child find their own self-esteem, okay? Our parents didn't walk around telling us how great we were. They told us about our shortcomings and you need to go fix them. And I think we, we made it all right. And uh, why, why, why did we do that, you think? Well, if you look, we've promoted and, and propped up the least, most least experienced and youngest ahead of people with experience and guys that have real life experience and have been through the battles. Those are the ones you should be listening to. But 
our society is a little bit out of whack, but I truly believe that right now there is a yearning and a craving around a lot of these young men and women to go back to a, a simpler time that is, is Christ-centered and, and is all about faith, family, hard work, and competition. And competition is what drives a training man. And somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of that. Now, I tell our, our guys this too, and, and you probably figure it out. I just, I put it on them and, you know, I'm going to speak the truth. I think the number one pastime in America right now out of athletes is preparation. I think that's the pastime. I think that's the game. You look around, look what you see and read. It's all about preparation. Very, very, very few still have that taste for blood though. And that's what we're missing. The missing link is, all right, you're going to prepare. I want to see you throw down. I want to see you compete. I want to see you roll out of bed and compete. You don't need to stretch. Let's see you go roll out of bed and compete and get after somebody. I and love that, that. And that's different today than it has been in the past? I think so. I think it's more, uh, and it's a double-edged sword, right? I think athletes are more advanced. They're bigger, stronger, faster than ever. They're better than ever. But we're missing some of that IQ, some of that feel, some of that acumen. You, you don't need X, Y, and Z to go compete at a high level. What you need is a, is a freaking great attitude, a great approach, and to stay on time. That's what you need. Does it feel okay. like a lot of, I don't know, whether it's businesses or programs or athletes, they're being programmed and they're focusing on growing people in certain ways, but they're missing the heart of the matter. They're missing their mindset. They're missing the way they think about things, the way they communicate, where they're just focused on the actual skill. In baseball, it's bigger, faster, stronger, it's bat speed, it's exit velocity, but there's so sure. many other things that are that are foundational that if they don't get those right, nothing else matters. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. We're missing a lot of attitude. And for me, attitude is just a supreme confidence in my belief that I'm going to win and I'm going to believe it and I'm going to carry myself like that. And that's my expectation. It's not a hope. It's an expectation to win. And I'm going to have a great approach. I'm going to have a great approach, a frame of reference, okay, for my timing and what I'm working to do. And then I'm going to be on time. And being on time is a, a decision, man. I'm talking about on time at the plate, on time in the field, on time on the mound. It's a decision, okay? I, I just shot something out the other day, and, and it was an advertisement for my pack offense book, which has done incredible uh, been blessed by that. And, uh, you know, I just simply said there's a – I see a lot on, on – on Twitter, Twitter sells swings, right? Where can I go to buy approach? I don't see a lot on approach, man. And without approach, it's like running up and down the field and never scoring. You you don't know where you're going. And An approach, your definition of approach, I guess there's the definition of approach in baseball, you know, but then there's yeah. also the definition of approach just in general life. What is your definition of approach? I've got that. Well, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, we've got two different definitions. A, approach in life is approaches my job duty or function at any given point within the confines of the Packer team. I ask myself one question every day. What can I do to help us win a championship? If that means digging a ditch, I'll go do it. If it means, you know, coaching third base, I'll go do that. Whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no job too high or too low for me. I just want to win. And then my approach on the field is is pretty simple, man. I look at the scoreboard. I look at my opponent. That's going to tell me everything I need to know. And then that's going to give me a frame of reference for the timing that I need and the direction that I need, no matter if I'm fielding, hitting, pitching, base running, doesn't matter. Okay, so 
approach inside the game is that's my crosshairs. If you've ever hunted, you know, and you've got a, a, a smooth shooting 25 out six that I use, I'm going to look down the, that, you know, that glass and I'm going to, I'm going to put that crosshairs on whatever I'm trying to shoot, but that whatever I'm trying to shoot might move. I'm going to have to change uh, my approach. So it's just a frame of reference as a starting point that gives me timing and direction as to what I'm trying to accomplish at that time. Now, a lot of people work without that and they're working in vain. They are. Yeah. They're, they're working hard. They're not working smart. Preparation is key. I remember Peyton Manning saying, Hey, when preparation wasn't fun anymore, that's when he would retire because that's what he loved to do. And he prepared all week, all week, just for a three and a half hour football game. And I'm just wondering the modern. And those are the best. That's the best of the best. You know, SEALs call it TPP, talent, passion, and professionalism. The great ones have two of the three. The all-time best have all three. And the thing about it is, is the best of the best love to prepare, but they also probably love to compete more than that. What were those three P's again? I want to make sure I hit Talent, talent, passion, and professionalism. Passion and professionalism. And you're saying most people have two, but the best. The the great ones have two. The best of the best are going to have all three. What is that third one that you think a lot of them are missing? I don't know. I think that's unique to each individual, you know. You you see a lot, you know. There's a the world's chalk full of unfulfilled talent. I mean, you, you ever look at that guy and go, man, only if I had that dude's ability. Or maybe you got a gritty grinder on your team, and you got this guy that's blessed with everything, and you go, man, if that kid had his ability, it'd be unbelievable. What is that thing? What is that thing? It's like, hey, if that person that has all this skill set just took this piece of advice or just understood this thing, they would go to the next level. Because you see that in sports and, and business. Like they have the skill set, but there's something missing. Is there one big thing that if they just figured that thing out, like they would be able to skyrocket? For sure. And, you know, there's there's going to be guys sit around today talk about what could have been, and that was probably the missing link was the passion. Passion outdoes logic, right? I mean, that's, that's truly why I believe we win as we outlast. It's not ability, it's passion. We'll, we'll just go all day. That's it. Yeah, and if you're not passionate about it, it's going to be hard to keep grinding when things get tough. Well, Coach, this, yeah, has been, I mean, this has been amazing. Let's talk about the pack real quick, and what are you doing? Obviously, you're leading the program, which is fantastic. Um, best of luck this coming year. Where else are you spending your time, and, and what else are you kind of working on that you want to share with our audience? Well, I do a lot of speaking and uh, just finish that up for the fall, and I won't speak again until – Probably the summer. I, I shut that down heading into the season. Love to share my testimony. Uh, 15 to 28 is the book. Uh, everything I talk about right now, you, you can get on Coach Dag's. 1528 is the story of God's love, power, and redemption. It's just my testimony, and it's hit a lot of men between the eyes. It's a quick read. It's a big font, a lot of pictures. Wrote it for a guy like myself that probably don't want to read too much, but it's had a huge impact. Uh, during COVID, I sat down and did something I always wanted to do. I woke up at 4 a.m. for for about eight straight weeks when everything was shut down and I, I pinned the pack offense and uh, pack offense and I, I pinned uh, or put together workbooks, two workbooks, uh, practice plans, tests, drills. And that's that's just been incredible. I, I, I introduced the pack in the summer of 06 and it's it's framed literally off a pack of wolves. Everybody's got a different job, duty or function to not only survive, but to thrive. And I think there's no other sport more fitting than baseball. And our guys are broken down into four categories and that's the way we coach them, teach them, train them, recruit them. And I think with enough water and fertilizer, that's how uh, you develop them, and that's how they realize uh, and become the players that they can be. And so development is a huge part of the pack. Uh, but what it's really the essence of it uh, is all about is it's not about one individual. It's about coaching a unit. 
And I think lost right now is the individuality of our sport. And in reality, not one individual going to make a team. It's always the team that's going to make the individual. And uh, it just it, it uh, shows the, the coach out there that wants to, to create buy-in and sacrifice and the belief that all things are possible inside every part of the game. It's just a blueprint on how to do that. That's awesome. We'll put your uh, website and some of the other links that you mentioned in the show notes, Coach. This has been amazing on multiple fronts, so I just appreciate you, wish you the best upcoming, and uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the Dugout CEO Podcast. Thank you, Casey. Great job, brother. Dugout Nation, what a great time with Coach Daggs, championship-winning coach and MVP guest. Here are the big three takeaways that I learned from Coach. Start with why, then figure out how, and then don't forget the who. Understand why you do what you do, then figure out how are you actually going to do it. How do you want to accomplish what you want to accomplish? And then don't forget, you're not going to get there by yourself. You need to remember who do you want to go on this journey with. Next, take life one day at a time. If you're struggling, you want to break a habit, you want to change something, say that I'm not going to do that today. Don't think I'm going to quit forever. Just say I'm going to quit today or I'm going to start today. It's that one thing that you need to do today. Long-term goals, they're great, but short-term goals are necessary. And number three, young people, they haven't changed. It's the accountability and the standards that have changed. Parents have compromised. Coaches have compromised. Their job is to help their athletes, help those they lead get self-esteem, where they need to help empower them to get self-esteem on their own. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP at what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.